Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Hello, I'm Alison Larkin, writer, comedian, narrator, and host of The Jane Austen Podcast. Join me as we embark on a journey through Austen's timeless stories, starting with Pride and Prejudice. The Jane Austen Podcast with Alison Larkin is available wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast is for mature audiences. It contains graphic violence and adult themes. Listener discretion is advised. Realm presents Blood and Gold, starring Richard Cabral, episode 14. 1853, Santa Ynez Valley, California. While California and other Western territories remain a rugged frontier, in New York City, President Franklin Pierce opens the World's Fair exhibition of the industry of all nations. Horse flesh continued to be a valuable commodity. After dropping off the posse's horses at the Arroyo, I led a group of 20 men south to raid wealthy ranches in the San Ines Valley. Some of us stayed at a Mexican-owned ranch nestled in a grassy valley. The sun was sinking toward the Pacific when Juan Cardoza came riding in a full gallop. He jumped off the horse, threw the reins to a man standing nearby, and raced to my side. Joaquin, Hector's been arrested. Some deputy named Love cornered us on the road when we stopped for a drink. He barged into an inn, called us horse thieves, and pulled a gun on us. I got away, but he took Hector. Love? Harry Love? He's the deputy from Santa Barbara? That's right. He's probably taking Hector back there. Hector Gonzalez had been a small-time thief and gambler before he joined up with my gang. He wore an eye patch, having lost his right eye in a poker game three years earlier, when he'd been found with two aces in his hand and three more up his sleeve. How long ago did this happen? Cardoza glanced at the western sky, painted in peach and gold tones. About an hour, a little less, so we could still catch them if we hurried. Maybe. I don't know if they'll ride all night or stop somewhere after it gets dark. We should free them if we can. My horse is exhausted. You don't have to go. I know what love looks like. I took a few minutes to choose nine men to go with me and another few to get horses and weapons ready for the chase. Within 30 minutes of Cardoza's arrival, we were on the trail covering the same ground Cardoza had in his mad dash toward the ranch. The last of the sun's rays vanished behind the ocean and stars winked to life in the sky. The moon was high overhead, half full. I urged my men on with shouts and jokes and threats, but mostly they kept up their pace because we all liked Gonzalez and nobody wanted to see him rot in jail, or worse, after a couple hours in the saddle, my mouth heaving for air, 
we still had no sign of love and Gonzalez. I began to despair. Between the time Cardoza had spent writing to find us, then to explain the situation, and the time to gather my force and to get on the road, another hour had elapsed, perhaps more. Love had a big head start and he had used it wisely. We could kill our horses, riding them at a fast gallop all the way to Santa Barbara and never catch them. But before I had a chance to bring the party to a stop, moonlight showed me two riders heading up a long slope near Gavayota, going south. They weren't moving fast or slow, just maintaining a steady pace that would eat up the distance without straining their mounts. I couldn't make out much detail from here, but one of them wore a sombrero, that much he could tell. And the other one looked almost as wide as his mount. Harry Love, I was certain. Creo que los tenemos, muchachos. Don't let them now. The thunder of hoofbeats alerted Love to our pursuit. Gonzalez heard us too. Though his wrist appeared to be tied together in front of him, he twisted around in the saddle and waved the bandana. His reins abandoned around his horse's neck. What are you doing? Signaling to your friends? Pick up your reins, damn you. We've got a ride. Love punched Gonzalez hard in the shoulder. The bandana fluttered out of Gonzalez's hands. Love snatched up the other man's reins and put spurs to his own horse. The two animals broke into a run, dangerously close together, until Gonzalez got serious about riding, retrieved his reins, and leaned over his mount's neck. The summit was still several minutes away. Behind them, out of range still, we began to fire pistols on the run. We were gaining on them. Love did something that caught me by surprise. Still riding alongside his captive, he drew a pistol. I saw the muzzle flash up ahead and knew immediately that Love had shot Gonzalez in the head. Gonzalez went limp. He dropped from the confused horse and hit the trail with a thump. Love spurred his horse again and the beast charged up the hill. I slowed the pace as we approached the fallen Gonzalez and then came to a halt just before the body. I jumped down and rushed to my friend's side. Love's bullet had tunneled through his good eye and into his skull. A puddle of blood, black in the moonlight, soaked the earth. He's dead. I returned to my horse, climbed into the saddle, and set off at a furious pace, more determined than ever to catch the lawman. But Love had gained the summit and started down the other side. By the time we reached the top, our mounts, having run full out since the chase began, were faltering. Love had been maintaining an easy pace, and on the downslope, his horse was practically flying. And truthfully, I didn't relish the idea of confronting my old friend. If we faced each other now, only one of us would live through the encounter. Again, I reined to a halt, and the others clustered around. No importa. Love will pay for this, but at another time. Tears rolled down my cheeks, but I wasn't sure if they were for Hector or two friendships ended by a single bullet. A week later, 
having disposed of the stolen horses, except for those exceptional specimens we kept for ourselves. My men and I arrived back at Arroyo de Cantua. In the midst of the crowd, gathered to welcome us back, I spotted Antonio Severino and Gustavo Zaragoza. Both men stood together near the back of the throng. They looked uncomfortable. Before dismounting, I looked for Antonia. She was nowhere to be seen. The fact sent a chill through me. Servino and Lopez, the two men who escorted Antonia to San Jose were here. Then she should be too. And certainly she had heard the commotion and come out. I dropped down from the horse. Men rushed to shake my hands or to clap me on the back. But my stern expression discouraged overly effusive praise. The crowd parted from me as I made my way towards Servino and Lopez. Rather than make a scene, I put a hand on each man's shoulder and walked them several paces away from the others. ¿Dónde está Antonia? Servino took a deep breath before he answered. Fuck, I mean, I mean we, we don't know. We took her to San Jose, as you directed. We stayed in the house for eight days and nights. She visited with some friends and spent time working in her family's bakery. But then one night, she never came back to the house. We went to the bakery, asked all of her friends that we could find, but no one knew where she gone. No one knew or no one admitted to knowing. No one knew. We didn't always ask nicely. You didn't harm her parents. If they had so much as laid a finger on the Molineras, I would kill them on the spot. Lopez looked shocked by the question. No, of course not. We didn't know where to find you, so we came back here, knowing you would as well. <laughs> My mind was in turmoil. Antonia missing. These fools let her out of their sight, and now she was gone. I paced, rubbing my unshaven chin. Of course they didn't watch her every moment of the day. That wasn't their job. She had lived in San Jose most of her life and had many friends there. She wouldn't want these two following her around all the time. And she always been safe there before. Was this some kind of revenge for my murder of the lawman Clark? Had someone figured out that she was my woman? No, 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 no. If that were the case, she wouldn't be missing. Her body would have turned up somewhere public to make the same kind of statement I made when I tossed Clark's head into the saloon. And if she were being held against her will, there would have been some kind of ransom demand. She was out there. She was alive. I just had to find her. I pulled my pistol and fired three times into the air. The camp went quiet. All lies on me. La Molinera is missing. She was last seen in San Jose, but she could be anywhere. I need 20 of you to ride out, check with all of your contacts, all of our spies, and tell them to look for her and report back. Choose among yourself who goes, but be on the road tonight. Finding her is now your most important job. The next few days passed slowly. Men started returning to the camp with reports of failure. Nobody had seen Antonia. Nobody knew where she was. Then, Antonacio Moreno rode in and handed off his reins, walking directly to my house. He knocked on the frame to the outer door. Jefe, 
I was polishing some boots in my room. Aquí, atrás. Moreno entered. He was a handsome fellow, but as ruthless as any man I had ever known, willing to hurt or kill anyone who offended him in the slightest, or who stood between him and whatever he wanted in that moment. And yet now, facing me, he hesitated. Joaquin, what is it, Antanasio? Antonia, she's in Los Angeles. Los Angeles, you sure? I didn't believe it when it was told to me. So I went there myself. I saw her. She's there. And you didn't bring her back? I, I, I didn't want to reveal myself. She seems to have gone there willingly. I thought you might want to be the one to discuss things with her. Discuss? What's to discuss? She belongs here with me. But yes, but, yes, but. But what? Out with it, man. She's not alone. The words struck in my heart like a dagger. What do you mean? Moreno looked at the floor, then at the ceiling. Anywhere he didn't have to meet my steady gaze. She's with Pancho Dominguez. Pancho. You sure? I saw them together. They were drinking in a cantina, sitting close together, like lovers. I couldn't believe it. Pancho Dominguez may have once been a soldier in the Mexican army, but he had since gone too fat. I couldn't imagine what Antonia liked about him. Did you confront them? I didn't want them to see me. After I saw them, I went outside and waited in the doorway until they left. How did you happen to see them? I have two brothers in Los Angeles, and they know I ride with you, and they know Pancho from old times. They saw Pancho with a beautiful woman, and when they described her, I knew I had to be Antonia. Do you know where they're staying? I think I do. I followed them. They went to a hotel. Later, Antonia came out by herself and went to another place. Moreno stopped there. His lips were quivering and he couldn't meet my gaze. What kind of place? I, man, I, I don't wanna say. Atanasio! I'm sorry, boss. Tell me, maldita sea! She's in a brothel. A brothel? Pancho has her working in a brothel? I, I don't know, I, I don't know if he met her there or what. But, but he stayed at the hotel? Yes, I asked the clerk about him. He's been living there for weeks and weeks. And you know where these places are? The hotel and the brothel. Yes, the hotel was called the Harper House. He has room 201. The brothel is nearby. I can write it all down for you. Los Angeles has grown since I was there last. It's getting crowded. I scrounged around the room for a pencil and a scrap of paper. As Moreno wrote, his hand was shaking so badly he could barely keep the pencil on the paper. Early on, I believed that the best way to keep my men loyal was to make them fear me. Now they did. And I thought maybe I'd been too successful at it. Easy, Antanasio. If you'd rather, I, I could write it down. No, I have it. 
He slid the paper toward me. The addresses he'd written down were near Calle de los Negros. I knew the area well. Honor demanded that I take care of the next part myself, but I didn't think I could bear it. Instead, I thanked Moreno, sent him on his way, and pondered who among my band would be the best suited to the grim task ahead. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. I found Pedro Vergara, in the tent he shared with Sofia Gordo. They were arguing about something having to do with Sofia's weight. I didn't want to be dragged into it, so I just pounded on the tent wall and shouted Pedro's name. Vergara ducked out through the flaps a few moments later, waving a hand at Sofia as if to shush her. He and I walked away from the tent. I need you to kill somebody, Pedro. You might not want to do it, but you have to. Muy bien. Don't you want to know who he is before you agree? Why would I? Killing came almost as naturally to him as it did to Tres Dedos, which is why I had picked them. I told them who the target would be. La Molinera has taken up with Pancho Dominguez in Los Angeles. I think he's got her working in a brothel. He has to die. But before he does, I want him to know why. Nobody can betray me like that and be allowed to live. Of course not. I never expected he would do anything so foolish. And neither did I. And Antonia must have known how I react to him, which is why they went so far away. 
They should know I have spies everywhere, though. Who understands how the heart compels people to forget all reason? I had misjudged Antonia. I thought she understand that when I told her she couldn't be part of our crimes, it was out of love and concern for her safety. But I lost her anyways. Worse, I'd driven her back to her old life, the one she left behind so long ago. If only I had explained better, she might still be safe in San Jose with her parents. I was as much to blame as anyone. Almost. If Pancho had indeed set her up in the brothel, then he was more to blame. He'd always been a smooth talker, and for reasons I couldn't understand, Antonia had enjoyed his company. He had to pay, and after that was done, Vergada could find her, convince her to come back. I handed Vergada the slip of paper on which Moreno had written the address and explained the task ahead. He studied the paper, nodding. Do you know where that is? I know the alley. I can find it. When do you want me to leave? De una vez. Corro Los Angeles. Find them. I will. And Pedro! Make it hurt. The bad news kept coming. I never seen Tres Dedos look worried. Then he rode into Arroyo de Cantua the next day with new information to share. 30 men riding with Thunder Sheriff Charlie Clark. Wilmer Smith from Sacramento has a dozen. And Walter Dorton from El Dorado has 20. I'm not worried about any of them. You don't worry enough, Joaquin. That's your problem. Or one of them. I thought my problem was that my woman is missing. A missing woman is never as much problem as a woman looking over your shoulder. I could list your problems, but there's not enough time in the day. I could tell that my cousin was joking. See, no matter how hard he tried to disguise it, Tres Dedos always had a twinkle in his eye when he taunted me. That twinkle vanished as he turned serious. But there's one more thing you should know about. It concerns Harry Love. Harry, the man who killed Hector, the mere mention of his name struck like a dagger. I took him for a friend once. Friends are the worst. I mean, when they turn against you, like Pancho. I hadn't heard anything from Los Angeles yet and wondered every day when Vergada would return with news. And Harry Love, the state is hiring him to form a team of California Rangers with just one mission. You, apparently, they're still not sure how many Joaquins there are, or if they're all just you. He's been tasked with finding and capturing or killing the bandit Joaquin and any other bandits Joaquin he can come across. You can be sure that you're his main goal i like to see him try. If I could get within gunshot range of that desgraciado, <laughs> my smiling face will be the last thing he ever sees. Bold talk. Having seen love murder Gonzalez, I knew I'd be capable of killing the lawman. 
but I would be just as happy to never lay eyes on him again. I just wanted you to be aware of what's going on. You're suddenly the most wanted man in California and all of the United States, maybe. <laughs> it's nice to be wanted, but perhaps not that way. Tres Dedos sat across the table from me. The question on his mind was obvious. What now? It's time then. Time for what, my brother? Time to do what must be done. To drive the Americans from the state and return it to its proper owners. California should fly the Mexicano flag, not that one of the nation that stole it from us. I've been thinking about this for a long time, cousin. Now's the time. The Americans tremble at the thought of us. When they see us coming, they hand over their purses without us having to say a word. We need to use that fear against them to send them back to wherever they came from. These shores, these forests and mountains and rivers and gold are part of Mexico and no other. But there's so many walking and more all the time. They're worse than rabbits, those whites. They're like weeds after a spring rain. We can't outrun an entire nation. If that's what they send after us, we might not get out of this alive. But I won't go down without a fight. And this is the fight I was put on this earth for. And I know that. As surely as I know anything in life, we need to call all of our men back from wherever they are. Then we need as many volunteers as we can get from among our supporters and as many horses as we can steal. We need guns and ammunitions too. With a force of 500 or 1,000 mountain soldados, we can drive out every American. I'm certain of it. I like it. As long as they don't all run, I want a chance to kill as many as I can. You'll have that chance. I'm sure of it. Now let's get to work. Harry Love was persistent. I'd give him that. After my men and I robbed a white rancher in Calaveras County, stealing 40 of his best horses, Love and a posse of some 20 men were on our trail by the very next morning, no doubt alerted by a telegraph from the rancher. Scouts and spies kept an eye on my back trail and reported on the progress of Love's posse. Night would fall in a little while, and I wanted some rest. The Mokalumla River would be a good spot to let the horses drink, let the men bathe if they so desired, and give everybody time to gather their strength. The next day would be a long one, during which we'd cross over some rugged country as we looped around to the south. But without knowing the plans of our pursuers, I couldn't take that chance. Instead, I guided the party into a narrow slot I knew of. Hours passed, and the sun had started dipping behind the western hills by the time the posse came into view. As soon as they were in range, the ridges on either sides cutting off easy escape. I fired the first shot. Harry Love was the most obvious first target, but when I aimed at the man, my hands trembled and I missed the shot, which slammed into the earth in front of Love's horse. The beast reared back, almost throwing him. As the horse came down, I saw Love yank hard on the reins and lean to his left trying to spin it around, but other riders still pressed forward and the horses had nowhere to go. 
The first shot was a signal to the others, and the withering volley followed that fouled men and mounts alike. Love's horse, on the verge of panic, took a ball in the snout and dropped to its knees. He leaped from the saddle, snatched his rifle from its scabbard, and ducked behind the animal's bulk. A destructive barrage of lead from two dozen rifles tore into the posse. More horses reared up, throwing riders or fowl atop them. At least nine men fell in the first volley. Biting white smoke clouded the clean, clear air. As the first group of us reloaded, the second opened fire and more of our pursuers went down. Some started returning fire then, but we had chosen our positions well and were dug in on both of the surrounding hillsides, sheltered behind stout trees or boulders or the ridgeline itself as we fired from cover. The men on the ground were shooting up, always harder, and most of their shots flew overhead or plowed into the earth in front of their targets. After the first few minutes, the battle shifted. The remaining men from the posse found cover in the trees or lay behind fallen horses. They freed rifles and started to aim more carefully. A couple of my men were hit, one by a shot that split the top of his head in half. Some of the posse members who had been at the rear of the column turned tail and rode away as fast as their mounts could carry them. Harry Love was one of those who escaped because after his horse fell, he snatched up the reins of another whose rider had been hit. He led the beast away from the field of fire, and the last I saw of him was his back. I fired another shot at the deputy's retreating form, but my distance was too great, and my round fell short. Now, men picked their targets carefully. The crack of rifles was spaced out, not simultaneous thunder. Even so, more shots missed their targets than hit them on both sides. Some of the posse members tried to work their way up the slopes, covering one another for short dashes from rock to tree to a furrow deep enough to lie in. I spotted one making more progress than the rest. He had already made it to the height that gave him an angle down on some of my men, and he shot two of them. He had almost reached the top of the ridge, I snugged the stock of my rifle into my shoulder and sighted down the barrel. But the man ducked behind an old pine with the trunk bigger around than he was. Glancing down the hillside, I saw almost a dozen of my men within the sniper's range, most still focused on enemies below, so unaware of the threat from above. So much death and more to come if that man wasn't stopped. I needed a better shot at him just below the ridge on the far side. A ragged line of trees offered possible concealment. As long as the man didn't see me during the short sprint in the open, I could make my way nearer. Judging from the angle on his rifle barrel, the man was aiming downslope, about to kill another of my men from on high. Nothing I could do about that. I was a good shot with the rifle, but the gun barrel didn't give me enough of a target and the missed shot would betray my own location. Instead of shooting, I took advantage of the moment to hurtle down from the rock-strewn slope. My foot landed wrong on one step and slid out from beneath me, 
I landed hard and skidded, sharp edges tearing through my clothing and into the skin of my left leg and thigh. I howled onto the rifle though, and quickly righted myself. The pain didn't start to burn until I was upright again and behind the first of the trees. They were more widely spaced than they looked. I still didn't think that was a problem, as long as my quarry kept his attention fixed on the men below him on the other side. I darted from one tree to the next, pine boughs offering a screen if only scant protection. As I worked my way across the slope, I heard shot after shot ring out from the sniper's position. The anguished cries of his targets suggesting he was picking his shots well. Finally, I reached a position from which I had an angle on the sniper. Should the man look my way, he'd have an easy downhill shot at me. Shielded by only a pine trunk, a little less in diameter than twice my thigh. I couldn't even lean on the tree to steady myself. The trunk was on my right side, where the rifle was. I took careful aim at the back of the man's head, then lowered my barrel slightly. The fellow's back was a bigger target. I squeezed the trigger. The rifle boomed, and my ball thudded uselessly into the mighty tree's bark. The shot alerted the sniper to my presence. He swung around the big tree and pointed his gun at me. I dropped my own rifle and threw myself down, drawing my revolver at the same instant. When my left leg hit the earth, pain lanced through me, but I brought the pistol up and fired three quick shots at what I could see of the sniper. At least one of them struck home. The man shouted and his rifle clattered to the ground. Pressing my momentary advantage, I charged. But the slope was steep there, the footing treacherous, and my left leg throbbed. Coming down hard on that foot, the leg buckled, and I landed face down in the rocks. I lost my grip on the pistol, which landed a few feet away and slightly downhill. Scrambling for it, I glimpsed the sniper retrieving his rifle. I couldn't watch him and locate my revolver at the same time. So I hurled myself sideways, rolled across the jagged stones, and snatched up the gun. I raised it and quickly aimed, only to see the sniper aiming down at me. Both weapons sounded simultaneously. I was sliding down the slope, rocks lacerating my thigh and torso as I went. The sniper's shot fell short, throwing grit into my eyes, but my downhill travel hadn't affected my aim. The line remained true, and my bullet struck the sniper between nose and mouth. The rifle fell from limp hands, and he teetered briefly, then dropped to his knees. I planted my boots, arresting my slide, and aimed again. My next shot hit the sniper's forehead. He collapsed in a heap. I regained my footing and hurried to the top of the ridge. From the sniper's vantage point, he had easy shots on several of my men, some of whom he had killed or wounded. If I hadn't stopped him, he could have killed many more of us. The fighting had mostly ended. Only Tres Dedos remained locked in combat. A white man gripped his rifle by the barrel and swung it like a club, trying to hold off Tres Dedos' machete. From here, Tres Dedos looked like nothing so much as a hulking grizzly, slashing with huge claws at the smaller man. The gun made an awkward club though. The man's swings flew wild, 
and Tres Dedos waited until one upset the man's balance, then charged in with the machete. Sunlight caught the blade, then the spray of blood as Tres Dedos slashed it across his opponent's throat. The battle, over. I started down the hill. When I reached Tres Dedos, my cousin was still hunched over his enemy's body, no doubt desecrating it in some fashion. Hoping to calm him, I gripped his shoulder. Let's go, cousin. Tres Dedos spun around with a growl worthy of the bear he so resembled and drove the blood-caked dagger he held at my heart. Beneath him, the dead man's head was sliced halfway off. I stumbled backward, falling to the ground. Soy yo, Manuel. Tres Dedos was almost upon me before understanding finally flickering in his eyes. He halted his charge and lowered the blade. Lo siento, jefe. Guess I got carried away. These hijos de puta. They were trying to kill us. And I wanted to teach them all a lesson. I looked at the corpse on the ground. The thing is, it's hard for the dead to learn. They don't remember much. Wow, if he sees me in hell, he'll remember me, por Dios. I have no doubt. He eyed me from head to toe. I realized how I must look. Clothing torn and ragged, flesh pretty much the same. All of it streaked with blood and filth. You look like shit. That's more like it. Gracias. My laughter ignited Tres Dedos, who let an infectious roar burst from his lips. Dios! I love to fight! Then he let loose again. Within seconds, we were both sitting in the blood-soaked earth, crying with laughter. (laughs) You're listening to Blood and Gold, starring Richard Cabral. Blood and Gold is a Realm production in association with Stryker Entertainment. Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Blood and Gold stars Richard Cabral, based on the novel Blood and Gold, The Legend of Joaquin Murrieta, by Jeffrey J. Marriott and Peter Murrieta, produced by Marco Palmieri, Fred Greenhalge, 
Kaylin West, and Haley Wagreich. Adapted for audio by Greg Cox. Directed by Fred Greenhalge. Executive produced by Molly Barton, Marcy Wiseman, Russell Binder, Peter Murrieta, Julian Yap, and Richard Cabral. Historical notes read by Elena Ray. Spanish dialogue translated by Alana Grafham. Regional dialect coaching by Luis Armando Mercado Campos. Sound design by Eric Mooney. Mixing, mastering, and additional sound design by Rory O'Shea. Audio editing by Corey Barton. Original score by Juan Carlos Enriquez. Music supervision by Marcus Bagala. Production manager, Alexis Latshaw. Production coordinator, Angela Yi. Casting by Sunday Bowling and Meg Mormon. Cover art by Kendall Thomas. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Asadolahi. Find more shows like Blood and Gold by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.